You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. It's been roughly six months since the words Hong Kong and crypto made world headlines. What exactly happened here? Why there's such a huge shortfall in the assets at FTX? He was saying right up to the very last minute, FTX was fine, or the FTX US. On Wednesday, the world's third biggest crypto exchange, FTX, collapsed, wiping out the entire 16 billion US dollar fortune of its founder, Sam Bankman-Fried. Starting in 2019. Sam Beckman-Fried and his tribe of crypto bros and crypto evangelists used Hong Kong as their base for FTX, a name that is now synonymous with everything that's given the cryptocurrency industry a bad reputation. Hong Kong was building a reputation as something of a global hub, not just for cryptocurrency trading, but also for trade in NFTs. But then, the Beijing central government began a massive crackdown on cryptocurrency and Bitcoin mining in 2021 effectively wiping out and criminalizing an industry that was worth an estimated 220 billion US dollars in trading in that year alone. And then came the revelations about FTX. We don't need to retell that story, but the basic recap is that Sam Bankman-Fried has since been arrested, charged with eight criminal charges in connection with the collapse of the exchange and the revelations and reverberations of how many people were affected keep coming. A lot of people lost a lot of money on FTX. In January this year, lawyers filed documents that revealed some of the creditors were companies like Apple, Netflix, Fox Broadcasting Company, and the New York Times. They were just some of the 9 million customers of FTX. But now we're about to see Hong Kong crypto back in the headlines. Because this week, the Hong Kong government is about to go all in on cryptocurrency trading. But this time, with new rules and regulations, it says will prevent a repeat of an FTX-style disaster. They're issuing licenses for accredited cryptocurrency exchanges to sell cryptocurrencies, including Bitcoin and Ether. And they're also making it a criminal offense to advertise unlicensed cryptocurrency exchanges. And yes, that means celebrity endorsements from people like Matt Damon, Madonna, and Kim Kardashian. What happens next? And what happened to that 220 billion US dollar worth of trade that was happening across the border from Hong Kong? That's what we're going to try and find out in this episode of Inside China. My name is Simei Shen. I'm a technology reporter here at the South China Morning Post, and I've been following the Hong Kong crypto story over these past years. Before we start, let me give you an idea of what we're not going to do. I'm not going to try and sell you crypto. I'm not going to try and tell you crypto will change your life or how much money you're missing out on making. I want to give you an idea of what's about to happen, who's involved, how these regulations are supposed to work, and why some very large banks and corporations from mainland China are very interested about what's happening this week in Hong Kong. This Thursday, on June the 1st, the Hong Kong Securities and Futures Commission opens up licensing for virtual asset services providers or in plain English, making it legal for retail investment in cryptocurrency. This is after months of consultation and submissions from stakeholders in the industry. But what does that mean? My colleague here on the tech desk is production editor Matt Haldane. Hey, Matt. Hey, Xinmei. Matt, tell us what is the reality of what's about to happen here in Hong Kong? What will happen on Thursday? So starting from Thursday, crypto 
companies, exchanges that are selling to people in Hong Kong or marketing to people in Hong Kong are going to have to be licensed. The Securities and Futures Commission will start processing applications for these licenses for exchanges. The rules that go into effect uh, were part of an amendment to the anti-money laundering law that was passed uh, several months ago. Uh, so crypto companies have known this has been coming down the pike. Uh, so this is finally happening on Thursday. How it all shakes out isn't quite yet known because the application process will only start from Thursday. So we know there's a, a long queue of applications here, but it's not exactly known who's coming into the market, how many people will, will ultimately be in the market. So at this moment, we don't know yet how many exchanges will be licensed or about to get licensed. But do we have a rough idea of what, uh, what kind of workload the SFC is still dealing with? Yeah. So we know back in March, uh, the Secretary of the Treasury, uh, Christopher Huey, had mentioned that they had at least uh, 80, more than 80 companies expressing interest in this licensing scheme. Um, and as you know, Shinmei, we've been told on the tech desk that uh, there could be as many as 100 applications already in the queue. So there, there is quite a bit of interest in this scheme. Of course, now it is being required that these companies get licensed. So uh, basically anyone who wants to serve people, continue serving people in Hong Kong, will have to go through this process. The only question is which companies ultimately are going to find that the market is is worth being here for them. Um, is, it, is it large enough to warrant them being in the market? So that will, I think, ultimately determine who's going to be here, who's going to go through uh, the hassle of, of getting licensed and, and having a presence in the city. So among those applications, are there names that stand out? Are there names that we're familiar with? We don't know exactly what's what's already been filed, but we do know uh, companies that have come out and made public comments about uh, expressing interest in being here, licensed in Hong Kong. Uh, the big names uh, would include OKX and Huobi. Both of these companies, of course, famously were uh, started on the mainland, uh, in mainland China, and then chased out during previous uh, crackdowns. So there were a number of exchanges that, that fled the mainland, wound up setting up shop in uh, the Seychelles or uh, famously the Bahamas. But these companies are now being drawn back. There's, there's an allure about uh, being here in Hong Kong. See, they see it as a gateway to uh, China, that they can stake their claim here, that perhaps uh, China is, is being more open to uh, crypto again. Um, and of course, this is, this is very interesting to these companies because they still have large workforces in China. So those would be the big ones. What about Binance? So Binance, uh, of course, is the largest exchange in the world now. And it was started in mainland China, just like Huobi, just like OKX. But Changpeng Zhao, the founder, he, he's not uh, made any public comments about whether he's going to return. But he does seem uh, very excited about what's happening in Hong Kong. He's recently been tweeting uh a lot about about the subject. He's recently uh, compared a recent white paper in Beijing, uh, as you know, that on Internet 3.0, uh, this kind of uh, mishmash of Web3 and the metaverse, uh, a concept that, that Beijing is pushing. He compared that to what's happening here in Hong Kong, even though crypto, of course, is still very much banned in mainland China. So, you know, whether that's he finds these developments enticing enough to uh, be licensed here uh, still remains a question. Tell us, how would this work in real life? Um, break it down 
for someone who's only ever heard about crypto and maybe managed to uh, avoid crypto bros at parties, uh, how does a person get their money into crypto as of June 1st? So the reality for people in Hong Kong is that they're going to have to start using license exchanges. Um, you know, so for people who've never invested in crypto, this might not be a big deal. That will be all the, they'll have ever known, uh, starting from Thursday. Once companies uh, have a license, um, for other people who have been investing in crypto for a while now, uh, they if if they had been if retail investors had been investing uh, in crypto through um, unlicensed exchanges or exchanges overseas, uh, that that will now change. Their options may be more limited uh, because uh, not all exchanges are going to you know seek a license here in Hong Kong, um, and uh, the companies that do get licensed here are only limited to selling to retail investors uh, large market cap. Coins with large market capitalizations. So, you know, the the typical ones most people will be familiar with uh, include Bitcoin, um, Ether uh, on the Ethereum blockchain. Uh, those, of course, you know, are the two largest. So people can buy those. And then there will be a lot of other crypto tokens to choose from, but they must be listed on at least two indices. So that's the requirement as we understand it under the new rules. So is this all about investing in crypto in Hong Kong or, you know, given how the Hong Kong government wants to be a virtual asset hub right now, what is the international angle to this? Yeah, so that's a good question, Chimay. What's happening in Hong Kong is there is uh, international interest and uh, an international angle to this, which is that, as you know, Hong Kong's making a big play to attract uh, back some of the crypto industry that it had perhaps lost under its previous uh, regulations uh, that did not allow retail investing. Um, in this bid, you know, it, Hong Kong is compared a lot to Singapore. And, you know, we've been talking to people about uh, what kind of interest there is in Hong Kong. And what we're hearing from exchanges, um, uh, people who run exchanges or even blockchain companies, is that they are quite excited about what's happening in Hong Kong. Hong Kong right now has the momentum that has kind of died down in some of these other markets, uh, especially uh, here in Asia, such as uh, Singapore and Japan. But there's still a lot of uh, ambiguity about what's going to happen with these regulations. Uh, the government has come out and said, you know, it's not going to be uh, light touch regulations. Uh, th th they're going to be more stringent. And we are hearing um, from some companies that the rules are actually stricter than in, in some other markets. So there is a question of, you know, will, yes, the, the excitement is here. Companies want to get licensed, uh, but will it be enough for uh, Hong Kong to s solidify its place within Asia as, as this kind of global crypto hub? That will remain to be seen. Thanks so much for your time, Matt. Thanks, Shima. Ken Lo is a co-founder of HKBitX, a digital asset exchange based here in Hong Kong and one of the applicants for the virtual asset trading platform license. First of all, Ken, would you mind telling us about the typical retail investors in crypto in Hong Kong? Uh, what are they like? So I think that that's a very bright question to, to start with, right? So in, in Hong Kong, right, retail investors, not just referring to people that live in Hong Kong. So imagine you're an individual traveling from foreign countries when you go to Hong Kong, open a bank account, right? That is the 
retail investors that we are talking about, right? Whoever you hold the passport, right? Uh, whichever fiat currency that you're holding, right? As long as you are eligible to open a bank account or a security account with Hong Kong, this is the retail investor pool that we are talking about. So not just limits to the Hong Kong residents, right? It also aligns to the Hong Kong as an international financial hub that we are attracting the global investors that can come in to bank with Hong Kong and starting their crypto journey here. Would it be right to assume that people from the mainland may receive some kind of special treatment in that, that area, given uh, China's mainland China's regulations on crypto? I, I think that's also a very natural question uh, to, to think about, uh, given there are a lot of the uh, mainland Chinese customers coming to Hong Kong for, for shopping, right, for buying property, for opening bank accounts, and thus their investment uh, allocation as well. So uh, I believe that would be a proposition down the road, right? Of course, at this stage, right, no one has a crystal ball whether it can be done at the first place, but it should be. Uh, a, a very interesting proposition down the journey. And I believe uh, both the regulator and different financial institutions need to work it out a progressive, realistic targets right, to implement such measures. HKBitX is in the process of applying for a license. Could you tell us briefly about this assessment process? Absolutely. I think a lot of people are very interested into this application process, right? Because when Hong Kong is opening up such applications since uh, 1st of June, I believe right, relatively Hong Kong is having very bright uh, light bulb, right? Uh, compared to the other countries where they're turning turning off their, their lights, right? So for the license, right, uh, given for Hong Kong BDX, uh, for us as an example, so I think for the whole application process, there would be a, a different judgmental criteria that we need to understand. Number one is uh, whether your team has adequate virtual access knowledge, uh, what is your shareholder structure and background, uh, and more importantly is uh, what are your IT systems, operating procedures, how is your wallet management. So all this technicality will come into place and under the uh, surveillance by the regulator. So I think for that, every applicant needs to demonstrate to the regulator A, they're fit and proper to carry out such virtual assets activities. Two, their operational and IT procedures are up to the standards of Hong Kong regulators. Third, and very importantly, it's about the financial stability, whether you have the enough uh, reserve right, to support your ongoing operation. Right? So, so these are the field assessment criteria for every applicant that they want to go through this process. And uh, equally important is about the allocation of the team that being uh, resident in Hong Kong, right? So, so that is also important to make to give uh, enough confidence to the regulator that you have enough people on the ground, right, to carry out such activities. So, so to sum up, I think there are a lot of different considerations for a market player to apply for this license. And of course, I believe that with more people applying and also obtaining the license, right, the pie would be. And larger, and I think only the sky is the limit for this space, right? It is still a very, very nascent stage uh, for a lot of the good actors to come into this market and push for the uh, revolution of this space. Mm -hmm. uh, could we just clarify a quick thing? The license that you were applying, you was, you've started to apply for in 2020, how is that related and different from the new VASP license? 
So, so I think, so I think it is a very good question, and it comes to a lot of the technicality mm. in the legal term, right? So, for the license that we apply, the virtual asset trading platform that includes products, i.e., crypto and security token. For the upcoming first of June license, the VASP virtual asset service provider that uh, um, uh, oversights the crypto part. So, for whichever exchanges that they want to. Offer crypto、um, virtual assets activities. They should apply for virtual asset service provider. When they want to also offer security token, they should go through to the virtual assets trading platform path. But I think till now, uh, uh, there's still no like a hundred percent clarity about、uh, how to apply for VASP versus VATP, right? And also how long would that take, right? So I think, uh, uh. Um, notwithstanding the excitement uh, of the uh, latest regulation flowing、um, uh, out in in the crypto space, right? I, I believe a lot of the players still want more clarity and and definitely need more professional parties to help them to assess their fit and properness. And more important is whether they can go through this journey. What's your sense of The Hong Kong retail investment market now for crypto. Do you think it has overcome the shadow of FTX and the crypto winter? I think it's a very good question. If we look into the、uh, crypto market,、um, the current market cap is around one trillion market,、uh, and、uh, we believe that still more than eighty percent of the global people right haven't yet entered into crypto market, and and, and I believe. Uh, that tells the importance of a regulator and compliant financial infrastructure that every country could provide to their、uh, citizens. Right. So everyone, if they want to have virtual assets in their investment portfolio, right, they are well、uh, informed of the risk and also the return. They are well understood、um, the subsequent procedures that they need to take care of. Right. So there's no. Uh, mis-selling cases that will be involved.、Right. So I believe this is the main theme for every country when they want to open up for the retail investors,、uh, including Hong Kong. So that's why I believe for Hong Kong opening up the retail uh, investors, uh, this would be very encouraging for people that haven't had crypto assets or virtual assets in their portfolio, and that is a super large blue ocean that we are talking about. Understand that right now there's、uh, a crypto market and a lot of the confidence is shaking between the institutional investors who have invested into crypto projects or investors that have current crypto exposure. But that is still a relatively very small pie compared to the larger portion of the people that haven't yet entered into the market. So that's why for Hong Kong、uh, opening up a structural approach. In encouraging banks or brokers to working with licensed exchanges to provide such service to the retail citizens, I think is the right ad to move on to the market.、Mm-hmm. Right. Otherwise, the retail investors may not have adequate protection, right, on the money they earn towards an investment that they may not have full understanding and disclosure about. Since we're talking about that,、um, the most recent controversy. 
kind of in the world of crypto involves allegation of the commingling of investor funds and company revenue. Would you say you're satisfied that Hong Kong's regulatory structure will be uh, will be able to prevent this? Yeah, I, I think if we look through the latest Hong Kong regulation stipulating the exchange has a clear firewall between the exchange money, i.e. the operation money, and decline money. And also a separate wallet management for all the tokens that you store for the company itself and the client itself. So so that kind of measures um, would protect the investors from any operational uh, inefficiency or potential bankruptcy of an exchange, right? So I believe with uh, such measures being placed, that could uh, prevent any tragedy events that we have observed last year, right? So I think that there's no no better timing for now to really rethink about how the regulation can come into the space, right, to push for uh, a crypto 2.0, right? If we want more people to be involved and also invest into this asset portfolio, you cannot escape the regulation and, uh, and you need to embrace it. And of course, a forward-looking regulator is definitely what the market would expect from. And, and, and I believe Hong Kong is now on this road. What would be your prediction for the weeks that follow June 1st? Um, where do you think the most interest will come from? Uh, I think number one is uh, um, uh, given Hong Kong government has also put aside uh, a a budget to encourage a lot of the referee events, etc. So I believe there will be a lot more uh, referee or blockchain festivals happening in Hong Kong and uh, encouraging more stakeholders to come back to Hong Kong to discuss this topic and to create a a new ecosystem. Right, that uh, encouraging more global players to come into this space to understand the regulation and to facilitate different license uh, applications. So that would be one. Two, uh, I believe uh, there will be a lot global players want to look into Hong Kong to become their regional or even the global hub to uh, relaunch their new virtual asset strategy given some of the other countries are tightening up this policy or the unclarity still prevails. So Hong Kong position will help uh, a lot of the global players to rethink their Asia or even the global strategy. So more hiring, uh, say a more in-depth discussion between those players with the local regulators are being expected. How important uh, would you say is the involvement involvement of capital from mainland China? Um, what, for example, what does it mean to you uh, to see Greenland Holdings or the Bank of Communications involved in crypto here in Hong Kong? I mean, this is very encouraging uh, because we, we all understand that Hong Kong has been historically and currently a gateway to mainland China uh, from the goods trading uh, in 70s and 80s to now is about the capital inflow outflow of mainland China. So Hong Kong still plays a very, very important role in the mainland China development. So in this space, given Hong Kong has a charter to embark the virtual assets journey. So I believe everyone here also has a role 
to think out of the box to propose different initiatives that can help Hong Kong and thus mainland China to differentiate their position in the crypto world. I'm sure there will be a lot more institutions working on their proposals, and uh, and I believe this will be only more encouraging. In the crypto space, of course, there is a hope that um, mainland China will reintroduce crypto again, following Hong Kong's embracing of crypto. Um, how likely do you think that is, and why? I believe uh, this would be a very interesting scenario, but could be a possible scenario right, if certain conditions uh, are met. For example, number one, right, Hong Kong has really done a good job, right, and demonstrate to the the broader world that with a rigorous uh, framework being implemented, right, things can get control and people are getting happy with sub virtual as a space, and it also pushes the fintech innovation agenda. So Hong Kong uh, initiative is truly important, right, for the broader mainland China to consider how to implement uh, uh, cryptocurrency in this space. Second, I think the implementation of stablecoin and central bank digital currency are also important as well. I believe that from the infrastructure talent perspective, right, there are so many researchers in, even in mainland China about uh, Web 3.0. Right? I believe a lot of the people are getting ready right, to, to do this. Uh, but their eyes are lasering the focus to Hong Kong, right? So as institutions and as we living in Hong Kong, I believe everyone should have an active responsibility, right, to feel the true implementation and growth of virtual assets in Hong Kong, right? So that is very important. Ken, thanks so much for your time. You're welcome. We've talked about how people are enthusiastic about all the positive things said about crypto. But there are people whose job is all about preventing or at least identifying the worst that can happen with cryptocurrency. One of the more respected companies in the space is Chainalysis. And Cheng Yiong is the head of policy in the Asia-Pacific region for Chainalysis. Cheng Yiong, hello and welcome. Thanks for having me. Have you studied the Hong Kong guidelines and licensing process? Can I ask what's your analysis of it and um, do you think it will work? That's the million dollar question. I think the chief executive of the HKMA recently said that regulations in this area would be tight. Uh, and I think that's a very accurate description. Broadly speaking, the new regime is very much in line with international trends on digital asset regulation. Um, so we're seeing this move towards comprehensive frameworks covering prudential soundness, market conduct and consumer protection, whether in terms of national policy making, we see this in uh, the EU with Mika in Dubai with the new framework rolled out by VARA. And we also see it uh, in terms of international standard setting by bodies like the Financial Stability Board and IOSCO, which just rolled out its recommendations on crypto asset regulation. I think what's notable about the rules in Hong Kong, the new licensing regime, is the, the rules are quite granular and they are at least as strict, if, if not more so, than uh, some of the other jurisdictions that we've seen around the region. So, for instance, the requirement for at least 98% of client assets to be stored in a cold wallet. That's higher than similar requirements we've seen in Japan, um, in countries like Thailand. And, you know, this will impose some frictions and some costs that businesses will need to think through carefully in terms of how um, they're going to make that work for the business models, especially in a T plus zero uh, settlement world. 
So, you know, in the finalized rules, we did see a little bit of easing uh, on specific points uh, that were proposed in February, such as on insurance and compensation arrangements. We saw the coverage threshold for assets stored in a cold wallet reduced to 50%, but overall, it's still a very stringent regime. And in my mind, this speaks to the type of players that the SFC wants. You know, they want players that are prepared to invest heavily in compliance, uh, in investor protection, and who have the resources and the commitment to do so. Do you think there are enough resources on the regulator's side being put into assessing license applications in Hong Kong? <laughs> I think it's a little bit early to opine. So we know that the SFC said in February that they're adding headcount to their intermediaries division specifically to deal with digital assets. Um, but really, we'll only be able to tell whether this is adequate when the rubber hits the road. Um, and, you know, Supervisory capacity is a challenge worldwide, and we hear this from regulators themselves. Uh, on the regulatory side, it's really not just about putting warm bodies into it. Uh, it's really also about the expertise um, that supervisors have. So you need people who understand regulation, different aspects of it. Um, and, you know, capital requirements are different from AML requirements. Uh, but at the same time, you also need these people to understand virtual assets and how risks manifest in the virtual asset space and how they differ from, you know, fiat risks. So a traditional AML supervisor will need to also understand the risks associated with personal wallets. They need to know when to require a Satoshi test. A market conduct supervisor is going to need to understand how custody is different in the virtual asset space and how to you know, assess cyber and information security approaches. So this is always going to be a challenge, this availability of supervisors uh, with virtual assets expertise. But I think the challenge is not just on the supervisory side, right? It's on both sides. It's on the industry side as well. This space digital assets, it's really still fairly young. I think risk awareness, risk management frameworks are still maturing. Uh, and likewise, you know, the ability to develop robust compliance frameworks um, is still something that the industry is working on. Um, and the way that the SFC has tried to potentially bridge this expectations gap uh, is with the requirement for an external assessor, of course, who can not only opine on the robustness uh, of the uh, policies and controls of, of a virtual asset service provider, but potentially also go upstream uh, to work hand in hand with them to help to develop some of those frameworks. What would you say would be um, your biggest concerns um, as Hong Kong enters this new era of licensed crypto trading? So I think first and foremost, this move towards licensed crypto trading is, in my mind, a very good one. And we've seen this uh, you know, repeatedly in chain analysis data when we look at geographical activity. So if you're a government um, and you choose not to license or regulate digital asset players, um, or you choose to restrict certain customer segments, it doesn't mean that people, consumers in your market don't trade in those assets. Uh, it just means that they have to go to trading venues that are out of the line of sight of regulators where they may be less well protected. So this approach of putting in place uh, a regulatory framework that can bring the activity onshore into the light, so to speak, subject to safeguards is a very good one. Um, of course, there are concerns because there are always risks in this space. Uh, 2022 and the you know series of uh, high profile failures, I think, shed light on some of the vulnerabilities uh, in the digital asset space um, and the fallout and the consumer impact that can occur 
um, if these vulnerabilities come to the fore. But the good thing is that the SFC is putting in place a very comprehensive framework. And then going forward, once the rule setting is done, it's really about supervision and monitoring on an ongoing basis. So regulators and supervisors are really going to need to stay agile and alert, given how fast moving the space is. Um, and they're really going to need to enhance the monitoring and surveillance frameworks. And I think there are real opportunities here to draw on on-chain data, off-chain data, new sources of data to better understand the nature of the activity and the associated risks so that, you know, um, they can be better managed from a supervisory perspective. Chingyi, could you speak to concerns over the criminal use of crypto? So uh, essentially, um, whether it's fentanyl, whether it's, uh, you know, ransomware, DeFi hacks and so on, um, the, the approach is always the same. We look at the funds moving across the blockchain to identify commonalities, to identify networks, to identify common infrastructure. Um, and what we always find uh, again and again um, is that often the crypto crime ecosystem is smaller than you think it would be. Um, so we see this in terms of scams, for instance, a lot of funds going to the same deposit addresses. Um, we see this in terms of ransomware, a lot of strains spun off by the same actors. And this essentially points to the existence of networks, criminal networks that law enforcement can target. Chengyi, you've previously said 2023 is a pivotal year for policymaking in this uh, space. What do you think the rest of the world can learn from Hong Kong's regulatory framework? So I think Hong Kong's regulatory framework is very comprehensive and very developed. Uh, and it will most likely be a reference point for other regulators in the region that are in the process of building out the regime, such as Australia, which is scheduled to launch a consult on custody requirements sometime in the middle of the year. Uh, ultimately, I think every jurisdiction is going to need to design the regulation based on their domestic context. And these regulations are never going to be identical. But the hope is that they can be at least international cohesive uh, so as to enable global business models and so the existence of reference points such as Hong Kong is going to be quite helpful for that process, I think. The other thing that I think is laudable about what Hong Kong is doing in the regulatory space is really trying to balance this tension of trying to capture the benefits of the digital asset activity while still setting high standards. And I think we've seen that in very promising way with the recent HKMA circular on uh, the provision of banking services to virtual asset service providers, calling on banks, you know, to endeavor to provide basic banking services, at least uh, to licensed uh, virtual asset trading platforms. Um, so putting in place tight rules uh, and then creating a facilitative environment with, you know, enabling uh, initiatives on top of that, I think uh, is, is a very good approach to the digital asset sector in general. We will keep in touch as we wait and see what happens as uh, the new crypto regime takes effect in Hong Kong. Thank you so much for your time, Chengyi. Thank you. That's all for this episode, but definitely not the end of the story about all you need to know about the changes coming to Hong Kong's crypto environment. We've got two special feature interviews with two very prominent figures in Asia's fintech and Web3 community, Neil Tan and Vivian Ku. You can find them in your Inside China podcast feed now. And as always, be aware that the latest news, latest analysis can be found at scmp.com. My name is Xin Mei Shen. Thanks for listening. Thank you.